Second uh, Kings 22 and 23. We are soon to wrap up First and Second Kings. Second Kings 22 and 23. Talking tonight on the subject matter revival in the land. And Ron, don't let me forget an issue we got to deal with at the end of tonight. Okay. Okay. Don't let me forget. Um, anyway, um, revival in the land. I'll be reading tonight from the NLT. Uh, revival in the land. Josiah was eight years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem thirty-one years. His mother was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah from uh, Bozakot. He did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight and followed the example of his ancestor David. He did not turn away from doing what was right. In the 18th year of his reign, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Ezaliah and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary, to the temple of the Lord. He told him, go to Hilkiah, the high priest, and have him count the money the gatekeepers have collected from the people at the Lord's temple. Entrust this money to the men assigned to supervise the restoration of the Lord's temple. Then they can use it to pay workers to repair the temple. They will need to hire carpenters, builders, and masons. Also have them buy the timber and the finished stone needed to repair the temple, but don't require the construction supervisors to keep account of the money they receive, for they are honest and trustworthy men. Elkiah the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Elkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Uh, Shaphan went to the king and reported, Your officials have turned over the money collected at the temple of the Lord to the workers and supervisors at the temple. Shaphan also told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll. So Shaphan read it to the king. When the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. Then he gave these orders to Hilkiah the priest, uh, Ahikam, son of Shaphan, Achor, son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the court secretary, and Asai, the king's personal advisor. Go to the temple and speak to the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words in this scroll. We have not been doing everything it says we must do. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam, uh, Akbor, Shephan, and Isaiah went to the new quarter of Jerusalem to consult with the prophet uh, Huldah. She was the wife of Shalom, son of Tikvah, son of uh, Haras, the keeper of the temple wardrobe. She said to them, The Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. Go back and tell the man who sent you, this is what the Lord says. I am going to bring disaster on this city and its people. All the words written in the scroll that the king of Judah has read will come true. For my people have abandoned me and offered sacrifices to pagan gods, 
and I am very angry with them for everything they have done. My anger will burn against this place, and it will not be quenched. But go to the king of Judah who sent you to seek the Lord and tell him, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says concerning the message you have just heard. You were sorry and humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I said against this city and its people, that this land would be cursed and become desolate. You tore your clothing in despair and wept before me in repentance. And I have indeed heard you, says the Lord. So I will not send the promised disaster until after you have died and been buried in peace. You will not see the disaster I am going to bring on this city. So they took her message back to the king. Then the king summoned all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem, and the king went up to the temple of the Lord with all the people of Judah and Jerusalem, along with the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. There the king read to them the entire book of the covenant that had been found in the Lord's temple. The king took his place of authority beside the pillar and renewed the covenant in the Lord's presence. He pledged to obey the Lord by keeping all his commands, laws, and decrees with all his heart and soul. In this way, he confirmed all the terms of the covenant that were written in the scroll, and all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. Then the king instructed Hilkiah, the high priest, and the priest of the second rank, and the temple gatekeepers to remove from the Lord's temple all the articles that were used to worship Baal, Asherah, and all the powers of the heavens. The king had all these things burned outside Jerusalem on the terraces of the Kidron Valley, and he carried the ashes away to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests who had been appointed by the previous kings of Judah, for they had offered sacrifices at the pagan shrines throughout Judah and even in the vicinity of Jerusalem. They had also offered sacrifices to Baal and to the sun, the moon, the constellations, and to all the powers of the heavens. The king removed the Asherah pole from the Lord's temple and took it outside Jerusalem to the Kidron Valley where he burned it. Then he ground the ashes of the pole to dust and threw the dust over the graves of the people. He also tore down the living quarters of the male and female shrine prostitutes that were inside the temple of the Lord where the women wove coverage for the Asherah pole. Josiah brought to Jerusalem all the priests who were living in other towns of Judah. He also defiled the pagan shrines, where they had offered sacrifices all the way from Geba to Beersheba. He destroyed the shrines at the entrance to the gate of Joshua, the governor of Jerusalem. This gate was located to the left of the city gate as one enters the city. The priests who had served at the pagan shrines were not allowed to serve at the Lord's altar in Jerusalem, but they were allowed to eat unleavened bread with the other priests. Then the king defiled the altar of Topheth in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, so no one could ever again use it to sacrifice a son or daughter in the fire as an offering to Moloch. He removed from the entrance of the Lord's temple the horse statues that the former kings of Judah had dedicated to the sun. They were near the quarters of Nathan Melech the eunuch, an officer of the court. The king also burned the chariots dedicated to the sun. 
Josiah tore down the altars that the kings of Judah had built on the palace roof, roof above the upper room of Ahaz. The king destroyed the altars that Manasseh had built in the two courtyards of the Lord's temple. He smashed them to bits and scattered the pieces in the Kidron Valley. The king also desecrated the pagan shrines east of Jerusalem to the south of the Mount of Corruption, where King Solomon of Israel had built shrines for Ashtoreth, the detestable goddess of the Sidonians, and for Chemos, the detestable god of the Moabites, and for Molech, the vile god of the Ammonites. He smashed the sacred pillars and cut down the Asherah poles, then he desecrated these places by scattering human bones over them. The king also tore down the altar at Bethel, the pagan shrine that Jeroboam, son of Nebat, had made when he caused Israel to sin. He burned down the shrine and ground it to dust, and he burned the Asherah pole. Then Josiah turned around and noticed several tombs in the side of the hill. He ordered that the bones be brought out and be burned, and he burned them on the altar of Bethel to desecrate it. This happened just as the Lord had promised through the man of God when Jeroboam stood beside the altar at the festival. Then Josiah turned and looked up at the tomb of the man of God who had predicted these things. What is that monument over there, Josiah asked. And the people of the town told him, it is the tomb of the man of God who came from Judah and predicted the very things that you have just done to the altar at Bethel. Josiah replied, Leave it alone. Don't disturb his bones. So they did not burn his bones or those of the old prophet from Samaria. Then Josiah demolished all the buildings at the pagan shrines in the, temp in the towns of Samaria, just as he had done at Bethel. They had been built by the various kings of Israel, and had made the Lord very angry. He executed the priests of the pagan shrines on their own altars, and he burned human bones on the altars to desecrate them. Finally, he returned to Jerusalem. King Josiah then issued this order to all the people. You must celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God as required in this book of the covenant. There had not been a Passover celebration like that since the time when the judges ruled in Israel nor throughout all the years of the kings of Israel and Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated to the Lord in Jerusalem. Josiah also got rid of the mediums and psychics, the household gods, the idols, and every other kind of detestable practice, both in Jerusalem and throughout the land of Judah. He did this in obedience to the laws written in the scroll that Hilkiah the priest had found in the Lord's temple. Never before had there been a king like Josiah who turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength, obeying all the laws of Moses, and there's never been a king like him since. Even so, the Lord was very angry with Judah because of all the wicked things Manasseh had done to provoke him. For the Lord said, I will also banish Judah from my presence, just as I banished Israel. And I will reject my chosen city of Jerusalem and the temple where my name was to be honored. The rest of the events in Josiah's reign and all his deeds are recorded in the book of the history of the kings of Judah. While Josiah was king, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went to the Euphrates River to help the king of Assyria. King Josiah and his army marched out to fight him, but King Necho killed him when they met at Megiddo. Josiah's 
officers took his body back in a chariot from Megiddo to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land anointed Josiah's son, Jehoahaz, and made him the next king. America was in trouble. Deep trouble. Seven years of war for independence had taken their toil morally and spiritually. Drunkenness was widespread. An estimated 300,000 out of 5 million were dependent upon alcohol. Dueling with pistols had become a national fad. Fear of assault made women reluctant to go out at night. Bank robberies were common experience. The number of illegitimate births was soaring. As a massive number of people rushed to settle the West, Life on the frontier was rough, crude, and turbulent. The spiritual state of the United States was at a low ebb. Where 40 to 50% of the population had attended church in the 1770s, estimates in the 1790s were in the 5 to 10% range. The deist Tom Paine gloated, Christianity will be forgotten in 30 years. Chief Justice John Marshall, Marshall wrote to Bishop Madison of Virginia, the church was too far gone even to be redeemed. A poll taken up Harvard uncovered no students willing to declare themselves as believers. Princeton discovered two students. Yale discovered five. <coughs> Churches in the settled areas of the East battled with internal divisions and low morale while on the frontier, they were few and far between. As one preacher lamented, how many thousands never saw, much less read, or ever even heard a chapter of the Bible? In New England, a Baptist pastor named Isaac Bacchus called Christians to pray and they began to set aside the first Monday of each month for that purpose. A committed follower of Christ named Timothy Dwight was named president of Yale. The students challenged him to a debate on the scriptures. Dwight's presentation of the gospel on that occasion and in the years that followed resulted in a third of the student body professing, Christ, uh, professing faith in Christ by 1802 and launching a movement of the gospel across university campuses. On the frontier, preachers such as James McGreedy began to pray and to preach. Soon tens of thousands were being swept into the kingdom in a powerful moving of God's spirit. The second great awakening reshaped America in the early years of the 19th century. In the first four decades of the century, America's population increased fourfold. Church membership increased tenfold. God's Word was the spark of revival, the prayer of God's people, the fan, and practical obedience, the fuel. Folks, when one reads a history like that, you have to see that there are moments in a nation's history that only a great revival can fix. Nothing short of a revival 
will turn around a nation. And you know, you can't help but think of America in 2022, right? With the problems we have today, nothing short of a great awakening, a revival, is going to fix our problems. Somebody might say it's too late, but when you consider the testimony that I read at the beginning there of America in the early days, it makes you think maybe it's not too late. Maybe there's yet time. Now, folks, as we look at this passage in chapters 22 and 23 tonight, what do we see? We see a nation, Judah, in need of what? Revival. Exactly. Now, two weeks ago when we last met, we were looking at the wicked reign of Manasseh. Now, his son Ammon was just as bad, if not worse. Now, we could argue Ammon was probably worse because at least, according to the testimony of 2 Chronicles, Manasseh did turn to the Lord before he died. There's no evidence that Manasseh's son Ammon ever did. And so Ammon was wicked. But tonight we look at Josiah. His great-grandfather had been who? Hezekiah. And so it's been quite some time now since Judah has had godly leadership. And it just goes to show that it doesn't take long to slip downhill, does it? It can happen more quickly than we think. Now, what we're going to see tonight is that while good leadership can point a nation back in the right direction, sometimes, despite that, it's too late to avoid the judgment that's going to come. Now, again, we've got a, uh, we've got a shudder at the thought that this may be where we are today. We could end up with great leadership and even a revival, but does this mean necessarily that we would be spared judgment for the sins already committed? Not necessarily so. First thing I want you to see with me tonight is temple renovations and life-changing discoveries. Temple renovations and life-changing discoveries uh, there in the first 20 verses of chapter 22. Josiah came to the throne at what age? Eight. And he reigned how many years? 31 years over Judah. And this means he reigned from 640 to 609 B.C. 2 Chronicles 34 indicates that when he was 16 years of age, he began to seek the Lord. And at 26 years of age... He began quite a wonderful spiritual legacy. Folks, that, what's that teach us? Never underestimate what God can do with a young person. God can raise up young people to make a difference. And that's what he's doing here with Josiah. Now, I want you to remember from earlier on in 2 Kings, it's been, it's been 200 years now or even more since the temple had had any type of major work done to it. 
we saw back in chapter 12 that there was the chest of Joash. You remember that? And people were to put money into the chest of Joash, and that was to go to the temple renovations. But that's been a long time ago. Things can really go downhill in 200 years. In 200 years, you'll have more than just three roof leaks on your house, right? 200 years, we're all in Things can really go downhill in 200 years. Notice that Josiah gave money to rebuild and refurbish the temple. And in the course of the temple repairs, what was found? The book of the law. Now, what is generally known among the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible? Which book out of the Pentateuch is generally referred to as the book of the law? Deuteronomy. Exactly. Deuteronomy. And so apparently it's Deuteronomy that has been discovered, this one particular scroll. And now, again, I want you to remember for 57 years, Manasseh and Ammon have been in power. And so the land has been in spiritual darkness for almost six decades. Now they discover the book of the law. And it's being read. Josiah hears it. And he tears his clothes in repentance. Now remember what Deuteronomy had said. There would be blessings on the land if people would obey the covenant. God would look after the land, protect it, bring blessings on, and yet the condition of the covenant was what? If they forgot the covenant, then God would bring curses on the land. And so... Josiah realizes the importance of what's taking place here, the bad shape that the nation has been in. God's bringing curses on the land, just like he said in the book of the law that he would do. They have the book of the law read, which would have taken a couple of hours if they read the whole Pentateuch. Uh, even a fast speed reading would take almost a complete day. And again, as, as it's being read, Josiah realizes they're in deep trouble. They're in deep trouble. Now, what's worth noting here is that ignorance on the part of Josiah's predecessors is no excuse for avoiding God's wrath. You know, a lot of people could argue maybe that during the reigns of Manasseh and Ammon, they simply didn't have access to the law of God. But that's no excuse. They're still guilty. They've broken the covenant. Now, Josiah is to be commended greatly for his response. But again, what the nation has done for the past 60 years in forgetting the law of God is no excuse. God's judgment is going to fall on Judah because of their neglect. We look around today and what do we see in Christianity in America? We see neglect. I mean, if you just judge by church attendance, uh, you know, there's a good bit being written now how 
drastically church attendance has fallen off in America. The stats are, are very disturbing. The last 10 years in American life is like attendance has fallen off a cliff. It's been going on for decades, but the last decade has is, is really been bad. Now, before the pandemic, people across America were asking of church, where have all the young families gone? But since the pandemic, there's also been a sizable drop-off in percentage of even senior adults who have not returned. And so it's a phenomenon affecting all generations. And people might say, well, we're busy. We've got a lot of pokers in the fire. There's a lot going on. You know, kids involved in, in sports programs, and we're working late, sometimes almost endless hours. And maybe we just kind of want to stay home and chill. But do you think that's an excuse for neglect? of spiritual things. It's not an excuse. Just something to think about. It wasn't an excuse for them back in Josiah's day. It's not an excuse for us either. Josiah realizes that as a nation, they are going to be held accountable for the spiritual neglect that they are guilty of. Now, there's something to be said here about his response to the reading of the Word of God. Folks, the Word of God isn't simply given for our entertainment. The Word of God is given to change us. God's Word is to transform us. It's to shape us. It's to sanctify us and make us a renewed people. That's the purpose of God's Word. It's not that we just simply listen to it. As James says, if we're just hearers only of the Word and not doers, we're deceiving ourselves. We're to be doers of the Word. When's the last time you've heard of somebody being so moved at the reading of God's Word? Tearing, tearing the clothes back then was a sign of mourning and repentance. Think of modern-day signs of mourning and repentance. When, when's the last time you've seen somebody lately visibly removed, uh, not removed, vis visibly moved, I'm tongue-tangled tonight, I'm sorry, visibly moved and distraught and in repentance and lamenting over sin simply over the reading of God's Word? When's the last time you've ever seen anything like that? You know, you can hear testimonies about how people used to see folks crying on the altar, maybe just for hours and hours on end. Uh, for people having all-night prayer meetings, they were just so moved to tears over sin. They were repenting. They were crying out to God. When's the last time we've seen anything like that? It's been far too long. Josiah is visibly moved. By, by what he is hearing. And uh, as a result of Josiah's response, what did God promise him? That Josiah, I've, I've seen your response and how you're making changes and because of this, I'm going to spare you having to see all this happen. 
I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait until you're gone. I'm still going to judge the land for their disobedience. But because of your response, and God knew His response was genuine, because what's God know? God knows all things, doesn't He? God knows the heart. And God saw Josiah's heart, and that Josiah was genuinely repentant. And he was remorseful. And, and so God said, you know, all this bad destruction that I'm going to bring on the land when I unleash my wrath and judgment on the people of Judah, I'm going to wait until after you're dead and gone for it, for it to happen. So even the people, because of Josiah's life, they were getting a few more years without seeing the judgment of God unleashed. Uh, they're, they're benef benefiting in terms of time. Uh, you know, by studying First and Second Kings, I hope, you know, we, we love to think about heroes of the faith in the Bible, don't we? And when we think about heroes of the faith, you might name somebody like Esther or Daniel or Samson or... You could go on naming a whole bunch of heroes, some of your favorite characters in the Bible who are heroes. I hope, after reading these chapters, you might add Josiah to your list of heroes in the Bible. Because he's a, he's a godly young man. And the Word of God is truly affecting him and how he is going to rule the people. Uh, God's going to use this young man. And, and again, he, he's not depending on public polls or sentiment or opinions and all that and how he's going to govern. He's going to let the Scripture govern the way he governs. The Scripture is going to be his roadmap for how he's going to lead the people and be a godly king. So again, he's a spiritual hero. So as you're thinking about that list of heroes you might have in your mind, you know, Hebrews 11 talks about a lot of those heroes, doesn't it? I hope you'll add Josiah to your list of biblical heroes. Because that's what he was. He was a hero of the faith. And we see that here. Second thing I want you to see tonight is a renewed covenant and reformed worship. In chapter 23, a renewed covenant and reformed worship. Now, notice as the conditions of God's covenant were read in the first three verses, King Josiah personally renewed himself to the conditions of the covenant, and he led the people to renew themselves. In other words, what do we see here? We see personal example. Josiah is putting his own life out there as an example for the people to follow. This isn't something simply for the people to be renewed on. Josiah is renewing himself. He's identifying with the people and how they how they've sinned against God. Now, in verses 4 to 20, in a rapid succession, we see all of his sweeping reforms that he did in the land. And again, he did all this. Why? Because the book of the law is shaping what he's doing now. So what's he do? Well, he had the temple cleansed of anything idolatrous. He had all the unfaithful priests 
thrown out of service. He had the pagan priest and the cult prostitutes dealt with. He went throughout the land and wherever there was a pagan altar or a high place or an image, he had it defiled and torn down. I mean, Josiah is like God's Rambo. He's going through the land and just destroying anything ungodly. He's on a mission. Uh, anything that is taking the hearts of God's people away from God, anything that's jeopardizing their spiritual life, he's getting rid of it. I mean, here's a politician who's not just simply all talk and no action. He's the man of action. And again, what's, what's this show you? This shows you how the book of the law, the reading of the book of the law, and, and him discovering this and God's wrath upon, it, it shows you how seriously he's taking all of this. It's genuinely affecting him. From verse 15, he even crosses over into the northern kingdom, Israel. He pulls down the pagan altar that Jeroboam had erected at Bethel, where he had set up this altar and a golden calf to be worshipped. Remember Jeroboam when he led the ten tribes to break off from the two southern tribes? He set up an altar at Dan. That would be in the northernmost part of the northern kingdom. And then he also set up an altar at Bethel, which was about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. And so for convenience sake, so people in Israel would have to go too far away to get into one of these pagan altars, he'd set up two altars in the northern kingdom. Here Josiah is going up into the northern kingdom. He's not even, he's not even king there. He's going up to Bethel, and he's destroying the pagan altar there where golden calves were worshipped. I mean, again, he's, he's a man on a mission. In verses 21 to 23, he reinstitutes the Passover. This was something they were supposed to be doing every single year from the events of Exodus 12 and following. They were to celebrate the Passover year in and year out. They were to be faithful in it. And they've not even been doing that. And so he reinstitutes the observance uh, of the Passover. Verse 24, he gets rid of the mediums, the psychics. Verse 25 points out that Josiah was even more devoted than Hezekiah. As wonderful a leader as Hezekiah had been, Josiah went further than his great-grandfather in reforms. So what's your assessment of Josiah's rule and reign? Pretty awesome, right? Pretty awesome. Uh, it shows you how much a, a land, a people can be blessed with godly leadership. He's, he's revamping everything. And he's saying, folks, we've gotten away from God. And we've let all this junk come in. We've forgotten God. We've been neglecting Him. We've been walking 
walking in disobedience and sin. And he's taking a personal example as the king to get rid of all this junk and call the people back to God. Wonderful, wonderful leader. For reasons why we're not told entirely, Josiah, he heard about the Egyptians going up to meet the Assyrians and and they're going to try to form an alliance together, the Egyptians and the Assyrians, so that they can stand up to the Babylonians. So when the Egyptians and Pharaoh Necho is coming up, uh, he goes out to meet him in battle, and the Pharaoh kills him. Uh, but what we need to see here, however, though, is that the scene is being set up for Judah's judgment. Because who is raising up the Babylonians? God was. You know, Josiah maybe was trying to stop the Egyptians from sort of teaming up with the Assyrian because again, their plan uh, was so that they could stand up to the uh, Babylonians. And again, Josiah's trying to get mixed up in all this. God had already decided, it had already been prophesied by the prophets that God was raising the Babylonians up. And so Josiah loses his life getting involved in all this. Uh, in just four short years, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be marching into uh, Jerusalem and, and Judah in 605 B.C., and he's going to take Judah away into exile for the next 70 years. And this was God's doing. And nobody was going to stop that. It wasn't that the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar were stronger on their own and had just decided to do. God was raising them up to be a rod of judgment against the people of Judah. Well, nonetheless, Josiah was a great blessing to the nation and he had held off this judgment that would have presumably happened a little bit sooner. But God takes his servant out of the way so that his servant won't have to witness the downfall of his own nation. Now, no doubt, after being fatally injured on the battlefield that day, Josiah met God at God's judgment seat and probably heard the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. And as God blessed and rewarded his servant, he then turned to pour out his wrath on Judah, just like he said it he would do. It was too late for them. Can sin be forgiven? Of course sin can be forgiven. But again, sometimes we still have to deal with the consequences of sin even if God forgives us. God was going to deal with the consequences of Judah's sin. And He was going to use the exile as a period uh, to cleanse the defiled nation before he brought a remnant of them back. And it would be through that remnant that eventually the Messiah would come.
Well, what are some lessons? The Word of God transforms people's lives and even groups of people. The Word of God transforms people's lives and even groups of people. What's Hebrews 4 say about the Scripture? That it is living and active and it's sharper than what? Any two-edged sword. God's Word transforms people's lives. But folks, the second point related to that is the Word of God has to be read to do its work. Bibles hidden away on your shelf profit no one. You know, it's a shame the way people today who have multiple copies of God's Word sometimes hide it away and never read it, never study it. They just ignore it or treat it like a piece of furniture. To, you know, they have it laying on the coffee table for appearance's sake or maybe treating the Bible like it's a lucky charm or, you know, a rabbit's foot. And they lay it out on the table. They don't read it. They don't pay any attention to it. It's just part of the furnishings and the accessories of the home. The Word of God isn't going to transform you if that's how you treat it. It transforms people's lives, but you've got to get in it. You've got to read it. You've got to study it. And as you do, it's amazing what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God and He changes your life and He changes my life. He does surgery on us. If you want to hear from God, if you want to see God's work in your life, study His Word with a prayerful heart. And you'll see what God's able to do. Don't just treat it as a lucky charm. And then thirdly, when the Word of God is taken seriously, people find themselves making changes in life. The way Josiah went through the land and made all these changes... And, and folks, this is something that each new generation has to do. Every single generation has to engage with the Word of God in this way. You know that. You couldn't just depend on your parents' faith, for example, or your grandparents. You had to get in the Word yourself. And it had to transform you. Every new generation has to engage with the Word of God this way. So the Word of God transforms people's lives and even groups of people. The Word of God has to be read to do its work. Bibles on your shelf, hidden away, profit no one. And when the Word of God is taken seriously, people find themselves making changes in life. Okay. Anything that I missed that you want to go over tonight? Maybe that stood out to you in these two chapters. The part that I'd underlined in my Bible when I read this before was the fact that the men didn't need to account for the money. Yeah. Because they were trustworthy. How many construction projects go on today? even in churches where they don't count money. They were so honorable and trustworthy and men of integrity, they didn't even need to worry about that. 
And those few men still existed even in the time after all of those evil kings that yeah. came before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. Because uh, when Nebuchadnezzar came in in 605 and following, uh, Daniel would be in the group of more of the elite group that was carted away to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. Because Nebuchadnezzar wanted to take some of the better youths of the people of Judah and try to change them into Babylonian disciples and use them to help him govern the people of Judah that were in Babylon. And Daniel was, it's believed when you open up your Bible in Daniel 1, Daniel's probably only 14, 15 year old kid. And when Daniel purposes in his heart that he's not going to defile himself, he's going to be true to God's word. He's 14, 15, 16 years old. And that's a great point, Eddie. He was, he was a witness to Josiah's reforms. And it had probably made an impact on Daniel's family and on Daniel's own life. Should be example You're even, even in a leadership position or someone of uh, that's making an impact on people that people are watching. Sure. And we better make sure it's like Manasseh. That was really interesting. I had no idea that he had kind of made a change. Yeah. How much better would it have been when he made that change when he was in the leadership position? Yeah. Yeah. In the New Testament, Jesus said the greatest commandment that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your affection, all your soul, all your worship, all your might, all you do. And in this, these verses here, uh, describing Manasseh, uh, verse 25, Manasseh, Josiah, mm -hmm. there no king before him that turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. Yeah. We've seen some good ones in Judah, none quite like Josiah. But remember, in the southern kingdom of Judah, you would have a good one, two or three bad ones, a good one. In the northern kingdom, that's already been destroyed by the Assyrians, they had no good kings. None. <coughs> Judah had a few good ones, and Josiah was the best of them. <coughs> 